Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It went viral. It was everywhere. I don't even remember being like there was a Muslim doing stand-up close to me if they weren't even Arab. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? If not me, who? Why can't I do it? This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. When it comes to fertility, it feels like the pressure is mostly on women. For example, if you're of a certain age, maybe above 30, and you're not married, or maybe you're not thinking of having kids, the question that seems to pop up most lately is, hey, are you freezing your eggs? Did you freeze your eggs? How many eggs did you freeze? Are you going to do another round? And while it's amazing that there are other options for women these days, the truth is that, shocker, fertility is equally a men's issue. And in this episode you're about to hear, that's the conversation we're having. We're discovering the space of male fertility that up until recently was a totally untapped market. I'm Dana Balutz and this is An Empire. Our guest today is Khaled Iktaili. So Khaled, uh, one thing that we ask everyone is like, do you remember how you made your first $100 alone? Oh, hell yeah. Um, We would spend summers in Montreal and back in Beirut, we didn't have good internet. We were still on the key, right? Like dial up, 56K dial up. Um, And so I would go to Montreal and I would burn, what was it? Um, Was it Dawson's Creek? Yeah. Yeah. I would burn CDs. I would download Dawson's Creek. Obviously, everyone was on the Pirate Bay at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Illegally download everything, burn them onto CDs, came back to Beirut, and I sold them. What? Yeah, yeah. Because like, hey, you want the entire season for, you know, 10,000 lira, whatever. Uh, and that's how I made my first chunk of money. That is amazing. <laughs> Arbitrage. Khaled is the founder of a company called Legacy. And, well, I'll let him explain what they do. So- the way, the way that Legacy works is you'd go on the website, givelegacy.com. Um, you would purchase one of our kits. And so we will actually overnight it to you. So you will actually get a kit at home the next day. And it comes with a few different, you know, technological components to it. But fundamentally, it's, you know, the deposit cup for you to ejaculate into. And then it comes with a sperm preservative that keeps your sperm alive during transit. So, you know, you do your thing however you want, wherever you want, whenever you want at home. You produce a sperm sample, you add the preservative, you put it back in the kit, you then scan a QR code on the kit. 
we come to your house, we pick it up, we send it to our lab, we do a full semen analysis, like clinic grade semen analysis, we test for DNA damage, and then we will send it off to be frozen. And so the whole idea is all you have to do is masturbate. Yeah. You know, it's like just add water. You yeah. know, it's like <laughs> yeah, exactly. just add semen, basically. Yeah. Um, and we take care of the rest. And then, you know, you're paying a hundred or so dollars a year to know that you will be able to have children in the future, no matter what. Khaled grew up in Beirut, like I did, and we actually went to the same school. So we've known each other for quite some time. He moved to Canada for university and worked as a healthcare consultant for a while. And it was during that period that he first thought of this pretty amazing idea. I think the first question that comes to my mind is like, how did you even arrive at the topic of male fertility? Uh, In as much detail as you'd like. <laughs> sure. So it's, it's, you know, it might be shocking. I, my childhood fantasy was not starting a male fertility company. Uh, I wanted to be a football player. Um, but what happened is, so after university, I studied business. I went into management consulting. It's a very kind of traditional, standard, well-followed path. It's been a few years going to like far-flung locations all across the U.S. And I had a project in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I can't tell you what client I was working for, but it was an American airline. Mm-hmm. Um, headquartered <laughs> in Oklahoma. Mm, yeah. hmm. um, and so I was the youngest person on the team. Um, so we were four people on this particular project and, you know, you have to wake up so early to go to your client site. So we get up at, you know, 6.30 or 7, we're driving to the client site, I'm sitting in the passenger seat of the car and we decide to make a Starbucks run. So I'm the most junior person. So I offer, you know, let me be the one to go pick up these freshly brewed teas and coffees. I go back to the car, I sit back in the passenger seat. And as we're driving back down the highway, you know, I just carry them on my lap. Two teas, two coffees. Um, a car in front of us that is driving on the highway breaks very suddenly. So we break very suddenly. So I remember as we were breaking, seeing the cups tilt over and the lids were starting to come off. And then I remember seeing the liquid just had fallen all over my lap. And it was one of those, it was almost like, um, what is it? It's like Looney Tunes. You know, when someone runs off a cliff and they don't fall until they look down and realize there's gravity. That's how I felt. I looked down and realized there was liquid. And it was this moment of, uh uh-oh. So then the pain hits. Um, So I was wearing a full suit and tie. Um, The fabric of the suit was absorbing the scalding hot liquid that had just fallen all over my lap. I jump out of the car. I rip my pants off because obviously it's burning me. So there I am by the side of the highway grabbing my crotch and basically yelling into the, you know, yelling into the void. Um, And apparently, you know, 10 or 12 cars lined up to watch this crazed man by the side of the highway with no pants on, but otherwise looking ready to go to work. Um, So I got second degree burns. It took a month and a half to heal, but thankfully it does heal fully, but it was a very painful experience. And so when you have scalding hot liquids near your genitals, you ask yourself the question, you know, thank God it wasn't worse. Fast forward a few months later, um, I am now in living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I just started my master's degree. And one of my classmates was telling the story about how he had recently gone through a bout of cancer, he had done chemotherapy, and his doctor mentioned to him that before he started chemo, he should freeze his sperm. So I just had this world traumatizing accident. Um, he's talking to me about sperm freezing, a concept I had never heard of before. And I don't know, like, I guess this is the closest thing I have to a light bulb moment because I turn to him and I say, okay, well, like, can anyone do this? Do, like, do I need permission from anyone? Do I need a doctor's note? Can I just go and masturbate anywhere? Like, how does this, how does this work? Are there laws? <laughs> 
And he's like, no, just, you know, look up the local sperm banks. That's what I did. Um, so I Googled, you know, sperm bank, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I went, it was, um, and I remember it well, actually, because it was right next door to my favorite Chinese restaurant, the Dumpling House. So it was very kind of sensuous vibes walking <laughs> in already, you know, it just it got me ready, ready and raring to go. Yeah. So you walk in and for anyone who hasn't, you know, seen a sperm bank uh, on TV or hasn't experienced it themselves, it is maybe the most awkward experience that you can have as a man. Because um, you walk in, you know, I, I remember there was a receptionist loudly asking me these questions, you know, like, so have you had any sexually transmitted infections? I'm like, I don't think so. You know, it's like, when's the last time you had sex with a man? I'm like, I don't think recently, you know, and, and you know, how, all these, all these things. And she asks, you know, so why are you here? Are you here because you have cancer? Because, you know, you're getting a vasectomy or because you're transitioning to become a woman? And I said, I don't think any of the three. I think I'm just doing it proactively. She's like, great. Here's your specimen cup. I don't know why they call it the specimen. I always found that kind of queasy. Um, and they lead you to a small room. And the small room, you know, it's about the size of a large closet. It's got a small black leather couch, uh, you know, table, porn magazines. Everything's kind of sticky, right? You're sitting there. And you, you turn off the light. You're trying to set a mood, right? There's a remote. You, of course, don't want to touch anything. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, and, and, and I just want to paint this picture because it's important. You know, when you close a door and the door doesn't make it all the way down, so there's a little gap at the bottom. Okay, so there's light coming from outside and you can see the shadows of people walking by. They're laughing, they're going about their day. And I had about 10 minutes tops to produce, to produce the specimen. You're just sitting there visualizing every hairy, bare ass that has ever been there. Uh, and so you're performing under pressure. So I had nine minutes more than I thought I needed. You come out and you hand your specimen cup to the nurse. But I remember coming out of it feeling, um, first of all, it felt like such a profound feeling. Like, I know I will be able to have kids in the future. It was a very profound feeling. And I was contrasting that with how awkward and terrible and expensive and weird and specimen related the process was. And I remember thinking to myself, um, every man should be doing this. If all it takes is for you to masturbate, once, right, and pay a few hundred dollars to preserve your ability to have kids for the rest of your life, then shouldn't you? I think there's a misconception that, you know, um, men will, that if like a couple can't have kids, that it's usually on the woman or that men that are healthy have no reason to freeze their sperm. Or yeah, like you said, the only people that are freezing their sperm are, you know, you have cancer and you have vasectomy. So can you help fix this misconception? Because you're saying every man should consider freezing their sperm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you're getting at, by the way, is this very common idea that fertility is a quote unquote women's issue. And so what we found is, first of all, infertility, right? This is not a sexy topic that you talk about with your friends, right? This isn't like something that you're going to open up to, to, to with, with everyone in your life. But infertility affects about one in six or one in seven heterosexual couples. It's much more common. And that's why, I mean, if you're, if you're in the industry like I am, you start noticing every TV show has at least one episode about a sperm bank or fertility or infertility. It's a very basic human experience. Um, and we forget about this. And so first of all, it's much more common than we think. What we found in heterosexual couples and what's become very clear is infertility is as likely to come from the male partner as it is from the female partner. 
And so the stats are broadly speaking, it's about a third male factor infertility, a third female factor infertility, and about a third that is joint or unexplained. So what this means is it, I mean, it takes, it takes two to tango, right? I mean, it, it literally takes, you know, a sperm and an egg to conceive and, and, and it's just as likely for men to be facing male factor infertility as it is for women to be facing female factor infertility. And then so, Khaled, when you decided, okay, this is like something that I would like to change, what is the process between having the light bulb moment and actually establishing a company? I like this question a lot because it gets to something that a lot of people want to believe. Um, a lot of people will say to themselves like, oh, well, I had this idea, you know, this person just happened to be a few years ahead of me. You'll hear this about companies like Uber or whatever, these very successful companies. Um, and what you learn is the idea is almost worthless. The idea is almost meaningless. It all comes down to execution. Are you able to take this vision? Are you able to take what I call the leap of faith and actually leave everything behind, quit your job, move cities, do whatever, and actually start day one by yourself at a coffee shop with a laptop, in my case, with a privacy screen, because I'm Googling sperm all day and Google <laughs> thinks I'm an old infertile man, right? Are you able to take that very difficult leap of faith, yeah. actually take the risk, start the company, and then go through, I mean, the, 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 the waves of difficulty um, of building a company from the ground up. And so it's, it's a common, I think, it's, I don't know if it's a misconception, but I think it's easy to want to believe like, oh, I could have done this because I had the same idea, but actually building a company is, can I swear on this podcast? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, and so, you know, it, it takes a lot of, this I can get away with because it's my industry. It takes a lot of balls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it takes a lot of gumption. There's a lot of puns <laughs> yeah, you can yeah, use on yeah, this yeah, topic. They, yeah. they, they, they just yeah. keep coming. Um, and so it, it really takes a lot of gumption to just, you have to have this moment where you say, okay, this is it. I'm leaving my old world behind and I'm starting my new world. And a lot of people try to half at it. A lot of people will say, okay, I'm going to do this on the side and, you know, we'll see what happens. The reality is if you are not giving full ass, not half ass, if you're not giving it your all, if it is not your every waking, breathing, living moment of your brain, then you are not going to succeed. But like, at what point are you like, this is an idea that I am willing to dedicate yeah. the next X decades of my life to? Yeah. And then like, do you just be like, hey, I'm going to peace out to <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, this. I'll preface this by saying I had a very funny conversation with my former boss. I was, I was living in Geneva. I was working at the World Economic Forum. I had this wonderful boss called Mirek. And I had to sit down with him one day and, you know, I was doing quite well and it was looking like I might be promoted. And him and I were having kind of a serious, you know, we're, we're planning on having a serious conversation about my future at the organization. And I sit down with him like, Mirek. I'm quitting to start a sperm company. Like, <laughs> like, there's no easy or normal way to say this. I'm just doing it. And, and what had happened is, you know, six or nine months prior, this major study had come out, like this massive meta-study of male fertility studies over the past few decades. And this study found that sperm counts and sperm concentrations have gone down by 50 to 60%. So huge decline in sperm. I remember seeing that study and saying, this is it. And that was the moment at which I said, okay, I need to start preparing to leave my job. And so that's when, you know, I started doing some fundraising. I started going around to my professional network. Um, you know, I raised about $130,000, I think, before I actually quit my job. I was building pitch decks. I was getting the website ready, all of this stuff um, before actually making the decision to leave. But 
I knew that I would be leaving. It's just a few things that I needed to get in order before I could. Um, but I still feel bad to this day for that conversation because I think I caught him so off guard. <laughs> you know, and he was such a wonderful manager and a wonderful guy. And I'm like, yep, I'm leaving. I'm quitting. I'm leaving Geneva. I'm moving to Boston. I'm starting a sperm company. Um, I want to back up a little bit before Legacy to talk about I want to ask, like, you have an older brother, like what kind of, what every sibling has like a little bit of a reputation for something. Like what was your reputation as a kid? (laughs) Um, Great question. One of my, one of my favorite things to ask someone is if they are like what birth order they are. Yeah. Because I think this actually shapes so much about you. And I I will, okay. Um, I actually have a nice, I think I have a nice way of putting it. So my great grandmother was very authoritarian, okay. which meant that my maternal grandfather was also very authoritarian. He grew up that way. It's what he knew, which made his daughter, my mom, also very authoritarian. <laughs> What's interesting for my brother and I's generation, we went the other way. We became super anti-authoritarian. We were like rebelling against the regime, right? Which for any Arab, I think that sounds familiar. Um, What's interesting is we did it in two very different ways. So my brother was overtly anti-authoritarian. So even in high school, he would argue with all the teachers. They hated him. I actually remember we we had a high school teacher who literally told him once to shut the F up in the middle of class to one of her students. But that's how obnoxious and annoying and anti-authoritarian he was. I was covertly anti-authoritarian. You know, I, I just kind of did everything under the table. I was always trying to understand the system so that you can, you know, once you know the rules, then you can break them. So we turned out very differently as a result. But I find it fascinating that we turned out the way we did because of our mom, because of her dad, because of his mom. So literally, this was the legacy that was passed down to us. But um, I'm the younger brother. So I'm, you know, I'm cute. I'm charming. <laughs> I get away with things. Yeah. He's the older sibling. So he bears the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's much more serious. Um, you know, so he he got the brains, but I got the, I got the charm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> But you're a very, we were just talking ahead of this interview, but can you tell us a little bit actually about your mom? Yeah. Yeah. My mom is a, my mom is a force of nature. She was terrifying when we were kids. We love her very much now and even then. Um, So what I find interesting about my mom's story, um, so you know, she grew up quite smart. She went to the London School of Economics. Uh, she worked in healthcare and public administration for some time. Um, but my brother and I, believe it or not, were really difficult kids to raise. And um, I had my brother and I basically alternated between being good students and bad students. Um, so there was a period where my grades were on the decline. I was getting C's all of a sudden. She quit her job to basically stay home, and she would teach me every night at the kitchen table, geographia and so on, like history and geography and so on. Every day she would beat me over the head with it, sometimes literally beat me over the <laughs> head with it. Um, and so she spent years basically getting us back onto a decent track. And what what's interesting is I don't think we would have ended up on positive tracks had it not been for the sheer force of will of our mother. Um, I asked about your mom because I saw on your website you have a picture of you, gra- of her gra- graduation. Yeah, which I thought was so beautiful. It was really sweet. Okay, so you graduated high school from the same school I went to, which was in Beirut, the American Community School. And then what happened? What happened? So um, I gradu- my graduating class was 67 people. Um, I got accepted to McGill. 2006 was the year we had, uh, we had war in Lebanon. And I remember distinctly, actually, I had to escape Beirut through Syria. We were, you know, so it was kind of crisis time in Beirut, you know, 
bombs had just started dropping. They had practically bombed our house. Our parents were in Canada. So it was just my brother and myself. I was 17. He was 19. So, I mean, we're, we're kids. Our parents are terrified. We pack our bags. You know, we go, we, we stock up on supplies. We have pack emergency bags. And so um, I, at the time, was deciding between the American University of Beirut or McGill, which is, you know, the decision ended up becoming much easier for me made the move to Montreal, basically had my one bag, and that was the new life that I started. And McGill was amazing because coming from a school of 67 people in my graduating class where everyone knows everything about everyone, people know, you know, dumb things you did in fourth grade and whatever, to McGill, which has tens of thousands of students. And there was nobody else from my grade who was going to McGill. And it was, I remember walking down um, kind of the main, the main gate area, um, and just feeling this amazing sense of liberation. You know, like I'm free, I'm anonymous, I can be whoever I want to be, and that was probably the biggest turning point in my life. That moment of okay, I can now be who I want to be, not just who I felt I had to be for so many years. When you started Legacy Khaled. Uh, like, did, did people think... I was insane. Yeah. <laughs> do you, Dana, do you know how many sperm jokes I have received over the course of my life? <laughs> you can make, you can make a, a joke book as like a gift, as part of your gift package. My God. Um, yeah, I actually, I mean, there are a lot of people who were close in my life. I mean, the, the person I was with at the time, I remember, told me, um, she said, you know, you're, I believe you're going to be successful, um, but not with this idea. And I had a lot of people in my life. I mean, my colleagues thought I was absolutely insane. Um, I actually did a presentation to my colleagues. I, I rallied like 10 or 12 people. We booked off a conference room. I gave them the pitch. Uh, and they were like, uh-huh, that's, that's great for you, you know, going into the sperm business. Like it was just such a radical departure from everything I had been doing. Um, but what I think they didn't understand was I had been thinking about this idea for years I had been studying sperm. I had been researching the idea. I had really thought this out. And I don't, I don't think that I'm like a, you know, I, I think I'm a, I'm a one hit wonder when it comes to entrepreneurship. Like this is my good idea. I have no other good ideas. It's not me being humble or modest, just factually. I don't know if I could do anything else, just sperm. That's it. That's the one great idea that I had. And I, I never wavered for a second. That's what's wild. I wavered around where to do it or when to do it. Um, you know, like what day exactly, but it was, it was not an if, it was a when. Uh, and so, yeah, everyone told me I was nuts. Um, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but it's like, first they laugh at you. Okay, no, I'm totally going to butcher it. But it's, it's, it's a quote to the effect yeah. that people will think you're crazy until you do it, and then they're going to tell you that you are smart to have done it. Um, but those same people didn't believe that you would be able to pull it off. Yeah. Was it hard? For, like, how did, you, how, how did you cope emotionally, I think, with being, I'm sure it's quite isolating to sit with this idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was a solo founder, which, which, um, which wasn't something I wanted. I tried to find co-founders and I found that, you know, uh, my female friends didn't want to work in sperm. Fair enough. And my male friends also didn't want to work in <laughs> sperm. Um, and I didn't come from a particularly entrepreneurial network. So I ultimately had to do it by myself. And I think what helped again, I, it's crazy. If you look back at my pitch decks from late 2017, right? We're talking five years, four and a half years later. It's basically the same idea, basically the same company, basically the same everything. Um, I was just so fixated um, and I, 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 knew, I knew what it needed to look like. 
And so I actually didn't find it that lonely because I knew what I was doing. I knew why it mattered. I knew that it would be, or I, I believed it would be successful. And I'm lucky to have a very expansive network of people who have just been, over the years, have been supporters. I started a mailing list. It sounds so silly, but I would send monthly updates to friends and family, right? Like, you know, we got a new intern, you know, we, we got a $1,000 grant, you know, we're getting sued by another legacy, whatever, these updates. Um, and through that, I think you build a lot of trust and goodwill because people see that you really are giving it, giving it your all. But I think I, I was fortunate not to have really felt lonely in the journey because um, I, I was so, I was so convinced, I was so convinced, still am, by the way, so convinced that this, this is going to be a massive multi-billion dollar industry. And my job is to make sure that it is legacy that is leading the way. When it came to uh, like going from this idea and starting the company, what what steps did you take? I know every company is different, but did you start with bringing building a team? Did you and then promise them money later? Did you um, start raising money immediately? And what the, what was that process yeah. like? Yeah, it all came quickly. Uh, so it started with um, needing to fundraise some money, uh, and so I figured, look, I had so I had a pension of seventeen thousand dollars took that out and I'm like, this is what I will be living on for the next six plus months. Fine. Um, but if I want my company to actually take off and thrive, I need funds. And so I started, so I was already traveling around for work, started letting people in my professional network know, you know, Hey, I'm starting this idea. I'm starting this company. And I basically just pitched 20 or 30 people. Um, and it's actually incredible because there was, I'm going to, I'm actually, I'll, I'll, I'll name some names. There was a guy called Kitty Maita. Um, so I'm sitting at coffee with him and another woman called Hiba Darwish. We're sitting at coffee and, you know, I basically had a nice looking pitch deck and a commitment to the idea. And we're, the three of us are having coffee and he's like, look, man, I love the idea. Can I invest? What's the valuation? And in my head, I'm like, I have no idea what the valuation is, but I liked the idea of having a million dollar company. You know, that just sounded good. So I'm like, look, it's uh, $20,000 for 2% of the company. He's like, done. And then Hippa's like, wait, hang on. I want in as well. I'm like, okay, fine. It's, it's $20,000 for 2% of the company. She's like, great, done. And so we literally took out napkins. I always keep a pen on me. And we signed the napkins. Literally, it was like $20,000 for 2%. Karim. <laughs> and I did another one for Hippa. I still have those pieces of paper. Oh, my gosh. Um, and that is actually how I ended up getting my very, very first funding. Karim ultimately didn't end up investing. He regrets it to this day. Um, but Hippa did. And so that actually set off um, additional fundraising. So I realized, okay, well, people are saying yes to the million dollar valuation. And so the next time someone said they wanted to invest, they said, they asked at what valuation I'm like $2 million. And then they said, okay. And I'm like, great. I'm not asking for enough. So the next person who asked, I'm like $3 million. <laughs> and this is the first point I started to get a little bit of pressure. I'm like, I'm going to keep pushing. And so I ended up raising it a 1 million valuation, 2 million, 3 million, then 5 million. And then ultimately 8 million valuation. Um, and there's like a few, there's a few, you know, fundraising tactics to be able to do that. But ultimately it's, you need to create FOMO from people who feel like, you know, there's one slot left. If they don't get it, it's over for them. Um, and so this was kind of the process of fundraising that initial $130,000. So that's kind of one part because with money in the bank, suddenly, you know, you know that you'll be able to afford to live. And as long as you are all in, the company will stay alive. The second is then, okay, well, you need to build a website, you need to build a brand, you need to think through what are your values? And this is a very under-considered element of starting a company. I made an employee handbook before I had any employees, which sounds insane. Um, but actually, I'm like, here are the things that I stand for and here are the things that I stand against. Um, 
So that was number two, being thoughtful about what kind of company do I want to build? Because it's easy to get very focused on the, like, I want to build a multi-billion dollar company. You know, I mean, most companies won't, but if you are ever going to get there, you want to have built a good foundation today instead of two or three years in being like, we don't have any real values. I need to do this now. And so that was second, which was being thoughtful about what kind of company do I want to build? The third came down to hiring. If you're a solo founder, I mean, the hardest hire is the first person. So what I did is I found interns. Um, so the Harvard School of Public Health was giving, you know, giving interns the opportunity to get some money while working at startups. So I took advantage of that. I found a guy in Geneva who was a PhD who thought the topic was cool and wanted to do some research. And then finally was introduced to someone, um, was introduced to someone who ended up becoming employee number one. So that was three. And then fourth was I knew that I'm in a top, or I know that I'm in an industry that is inherently it's interesting. Like sperm, it makes people laugh, it makes people cry, it makes people, I mean, you know, it has it has a lot of effects on a lot of people. Um, you need it to create life, right? And so um, even at the time, I knew I needed to make sure that we had media coverage, that we needed awards, that we needed to be out there um, talking to the press. And so part four was I applied to every award, every nomination, every competition, every everything. Um, because I knew that that's what would help us get into the mainstream media. Like we're not building a business to business enterprise resource planning software, yeah. right? Like this is sperm. It's 10 billion times more interesting. And so fast forward a few months. So the biggest startup competition is called TechCrunch Disrupt. So TechCrunch Disrupt happens in Europe, in the Middle East, in Africa, and all over the world. And so I actually applied to three of them. So didn't get into the first two, but I got an email from TechCrunch in Europe saying, hey, look, you know, you weren't selected for the battlefield, but we think you're one of the interesting companies. We'll give you free tickets to attend. I'm like, okay, you know what? Good. I'll see what I can do. Plant some seeds, drum up some interest, what have you. As I'm landing in Berlin airport, it's 8 p.m., um, I get an email titled, congratulations, you have been selected as the wild card. What I did not know was that every year, 12 startups are selected months in advance and have months to prepare. And then the day before the competition starts, they select one more startup as the 13th wild card startup. So they send me an email saying, show up tomorrow morning, ready to compete against the other 12 startups. Show up with a seven-minute pitch and a set of slides ready to present to an audience of thousands. Oh my gosh. And I remember this feeling like, okay, my life has led up to this moment. You know, <laughs> this is it. it. I can do this. I can do this, um, yeah. I call up my friend, uh, Rami Karabiba. I call him up. Um, he's in Montreal. I'm like, Rami, I need your help. Like, you're seven hours behind me. Can you help me put some slides together? He's like, I got you. Don't worry about it. I wake up the next morning at 6 a.m. I'm exhausted. I've been traveling, all this stuff. He sent me his slides. I get the pitch ready. I'm like, let's go and do this. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Khaled Kateli, and I'm here to talk to you about legacy. For the next five and a half minutes, I'm going to talk about assets, investments, and deposits without ever referring to the financial industry. Because legacy is the only life investment you'll make. So I go, and I give them the pitch for legacy. Um, and we won. And there's, there's a joke on my team till today because, you know, there's a very legitimate judging panel of some like top VCs, you know, top reporters who were there. And one of the questions that I got from one of the judges was, okay, this is great. So how many customers do you have? The answer, of course, was zero. Uh, and I'm like, 
I don't want to talk about customers. Let's talk about conversations. We've had thousands of conversations with men who are so excited about this. And he was like, uh-huh, sure, yeah. sure. Um, but, you know, we, we ended up winning. Um, and that was what triggered kind of the beginning of the press coverage because suddenly we were on the first page of TechCrunch, which is, you know, the startup journal um, that startups dream of being on. We were there. And again, it's sperm. People commented, people shared, people liked, people whatever. Um, and that's what set off, I think, a lot of the coverage because that's when the initial inbounds came in from venture capitalists who were basically saying, hey, sperm, this is fascinating. Uh, can I possibly invest? And where are you today in the process, Khaled? Like, how big is legacy, and um, where? What are you looking forward to? Uh, well, we've we've now raised about forty five million dollars. Um, so we've raised we've raised a good amount of money. Um, we're about fifty folks, give or take, today. Um, so that's spread across the U.S. Some folks in Canada, South Africa, Colombia, Romania, a few other countries. Um, and we've we've grown quickly. I mean, we we grew seven x in twenty twenty um, during COVID. A lot of fertility clinics shut down, and so a lot of folks use our service. Uh, in twenty twenty one, we tripled our revenue again. You know, twenty twenty two, we're growing, and so it's been. Uh, again, knock on wood, we've been fortunate to grow quite quickly. We've been fortunate to raise a good amount of money. What I'm proudest of the most is, you know, I talked about values, and this is something that I worked on in 2018. Yeah. Um, you can ask any single person at Legacy what are our values, and they know them by heart. And maybe this is from, you know, my mom teaching me the kitchen table back in eighth grade where she'd beat me over the head until I had everything memorized. And one of the things that I love is, not only have we now helped tens of thousands of people either have kids or preserve their ability to have kids, but we've built this team of 50 who know why we're here, what we're doing, why it matters, what the big vision is, and are so aligned with the values that, you know, we had initially set out years and years ago. We all know that starting a company, you've said it's fucking hard, and I believe you. In those, like, in the toughest moments, um, who is, like, the first person that you generally call or, or what is the thing that y you tend to do to kind of... Uh, I have my, my life mantra is very simple. It's uh, sleep well and hydrate. And so I, whenever I'm in a bad mood, I go to bed. I sleep. Um, and so, you know, recently went through a tough time, slept 13 hours and emerged from it a new man, or at least that's kind of how it felt. Um, so that, that helps a lot. You have to think a lot about your mental health. Um, one of my kind of early mentors is a founder called Karin Soroya, who founded a company called Cover, which is in the insurance tech space. Um, and when I first started Legacy, he said something to me that I, that I retain. Um, this is not fun advice, by the way, but, you know, uh, he said to me, look, man, enjoy the first few months that you have. And I'm like, why? We have no customers, no revenue, no partners, no nothing. He's like, yes, but he's like, it only ever gets worse. It's like, so appreciate the times that you have now. And it's crazy because obviously the time I'm like, you're insane. I'm going to work my butt off, whatever. And I did. Um, but I look back, I'm like, wow, those really were the good old days. It really only does ever get worse. Because, you know, when, when, when you raise more money, that's great. But it now means you have larger investors and you're running board meetings and you have more people and people have a lot of feelings. And, you know, so, you know, but pe people do. A company is people and people are feelings. And so running a company is just managing everyone's emotions. Um, my first call is honestly my brother, uh, my brother Noor. He's a professor. He's very smart. Um, he never bullshit. 
he loves to put me down. And so, <laughs> that's just, I think, as my older brother. Um, yeah. What's nice is, you know, I take everything he says at face value. I know he has my best interests at heart. I don't have to second guess that. He's very honest with me. If, if he thinks I'm being a moron, he tells me. And if he thinks it's a good idea, he will tell me. Um, and so talking through problems with him has actually been um, super valuable for me. On kind of a final note, I want to ask, this is, you know what? Yeah, I'm gonna. We usually ask, like, you know, what would be the first two lines of your obituary. But for you, I'm gonna ask, what would he came too soon? What? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's good, actually. Um, What do you want your own very cheesy question? Your own legacy to be? Um. Okay, I will give you a serious answer, which is, I think building a business that is successful is only valuable to the world. I mean, look, you can make money. Great. You can be able to provide for yourself and your family. Nobody needs private jets or exotic cars or whatever. You need the fundamentals. You need a nice place to live. You need furniture, clothes, food, you know, roof over your head, all that stuff. So I think that wanting to build a multi-billion dollar business, which I very much do and believe that legacy will be, is not at all about making money. It is about actually helping people choose how and when to have families on their own terms, right? I think to actually have a mission that positively impacts the world. And then if a byproduct of that is you do become financially successful, to be able to put those resources to humanitarian work to actually make the world a better place. And what I learned is that, you know, a lot of power and influence actually comes from having power and influence uh, and, the, and the wealth and the money behind it. And we, we know that this is the way the world works. And it's, it's very easy to get focused on, you know, here are the morals that I have and we're morally just. I'm like, that's all fine. But if you don't actually have the, the resources and the network and the influence to change anything, then nothing's going to change, or at least not for a very long time. And so I think that, that, a, that an interesting byproduct of building a successful business is being able to shape the world positively from a humanitarian context. This episode was produced by Finbar Anderson and Alex Atak with a ton of additional support from Ben Barkawi. It was edited by me, Dana Balutz. Fact-checking was by Dina Sabri, and sound design and mixing was by Yusuf Duwazu. A big thanks to Mazen Hashim at Solo Films for the studio in Beirut. They were so generous. And a very special thanks, of course, to Khaled Dikteli for speaking to us on this episode. You can find out more about Legacy on their website, givelegacy.com. And by the way, you can also head to YouTube and search for El Empire and watch the full uncut chat between Khaled and I, as well as other episodes from this season. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Take care. Stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.